Hi, I'm Luke Campbell, and I work for a small wine company, and he's Luke Morris, and... Uh, I, I'm special, and I've forgotten what am I supposed to say in this bit. I'm cool. It's good, good podcast. Let's go, Campbell. And together, we are Luke's Talk Wine, who talk all things wine and booze and popular culture. Think when to drink, why we drink it, and the culture that surrounds drinking. Hello, Luke. Hello, Luke. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> Have we got an episode for you? Uh, this week, actually, we've got a listener question which came from our listening audience. Thank you to Mum and our other two listeners out there. No, we've got um, more than that. Don't talk us down, man. We're doing fine. <laughs> Where can you find good vintage charts, good wine vintage charts from Halliday are behind a paywall? Lengthen. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that Lengthen. Chris? Chris. Did Chris asked that? Chris in Vermont or something? Yes, Chris asked, um, where can you find a good Australian vintage chart? Lincoln stops in 2013. That's course, That's about when you left, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> you probably stopped doing it, Luke Morris. And why is it so hard? Chris, we'll get to the bottom of vintage charts. Vintage charts raises a whole nother um, type of questions. But in addition to that, this question is we'll talk about our top wines so far and as a precursor to uh, the top 100 wines later in the year. And we'll give you guys, our listeners, a bit of a taste, uh, you know, of about our top five wines so far this year that we've had. Midway, almost at the midway point, uh, certainly coming to the end of uh, this mid-season podcast break. We will talk to you about our top wines. But first, and as always... With Luke's Talk Wines podcast, Luke Morris, what have you been enjoying in your wine world this week? <laughs> uh, what's been happening? Gosh, uh, oh, so I've been working on this. I've been listening to um, a couple of podcasts and just trying to get some idea of being financially independent. Like I, you, you, you run a business. You, you, you generate your own income. I work for somebody, and you know. I, I just I, I I when I do like the theatre work that I do and um, that's an independent thing that I create and that's I always work harder and feel a lot happier about doing that stuff. So I just sort of think, okay, how do I take ownership? How do I be more independent financially? And I thought about that in terms of the wine world. Yeah. And there's things that we can do, but we were just chatting off air. Before we press play on how your independent business is going, and would you say you work harder because you've started your own small business, Benefied? Mm. Would you say you work harder now than you did when you worked for other people? Gee, that's a biggie. Do I work harder now? Because you said I'll, I'll lead. I'll help you a little bit because one person said that they they tried to get some financial independence because they could then judge when they worked as opposed to have to be rostered all the time. And that mm -hmm. allowed them to spend more time with their family. And mm -hmm. you said that, strangely, you said that that was part of your goal to start off with. Mm -hmm. So you might be working harder, but you might choose when you, I don't, I don't know. How do you, how do you approach that I, idea? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great quandary. It's that, it, it is that quandary. I, I am working, I'm definitely working longer and I do work to suit my lifestyle. Uh, so, you know, I, I work a lot of, um, you know, long hours 
I think I had the same passion if I worked for somebody else, Luke Morris, and the same drive. I think I was always, you know, one 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 of those guys that was one team, one dream as a hospitality professional and someone who's yeah. made a career out of it. If I was in it, I was in it one hundred and ten percent. Yeah. Oh, you know, I don't think I was ever questioning that you worked like you, you, you slackened off working for somebody else. But hmm. if you just find you, you know, you, you know, everybody says you give one hundred and ten percent. Well, do you give one hundred and twenty percent when it's your own hands in the dirt? Yeah, well, I, I think you, maybe you, you probably do. No, not not maybe. You probably do because your names above the door yeah. or on the license or whatever it might be. You probably do, but I think. You know, g- gaining that financial independence, which is the status of having enough income or sufficient wealth, I think an income can be graded not necessarily fiscally or financially. Income might be love from the kids, you know, holidays overseas, uh, you know, h- hugs from your family around you. Like income may not necessarily be financial. There may be a lot of other benefits in that. Um, income earned without having to work for a job nine to five, um, I've, I've always loved, you know, my business, Finified, has many spokes to its wheel and then it's not necessarily, a, in the words of Dolly Parton, working nine to five. No, that's the thing. Yeah, working nine to five used to be, because I worked in the industry for so long and the problem in the industry is even though, you know, it, it, it comes across as fun all the time, it's not, always fun because uh-huh. you're working while other people are having fun often mm. and it sort of takes a toll on the whole social life and all that kind of thing because when do you go and have fun when everybody else is not and I was like Ugh, well <laughs> what do I do now but yeah you seem to work extra hours and the pay isn't really high enough that you can never really be independent like if you if, if you're working I don't know if you remember working in restaurants and things like that, the pay is never really great enough that you can ever really f- merge out on your own because you're just paying, you're just earning enough money to pay rent and food and go back to your job. <laughs> That's mm. it's it's an it's an, it's a it's a tough industry to establish financial independence while working. Well, w- w- without a doubt, yeah. If you're we're working in the wine or hospitality industries, um, gaining, gaining, gaining that financial independence is a, in the distance for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saving to buy a house or any of that kind of stuff is all really hard work. Yeah, it's much further down the track than, say, if you'd taken up lawyering or uh, plumbing or, you know, even fashionista like it to be i think yeah. you'd probably be better off <laughs> yeah you, you, you might be but the interesting thing is it's annoying because you have a skill set that is you're very good at your skill set and if you were to try and do oh, thanks, not man. just not yeah but not and, and not to put you down but if i was to say if you tried to go and do lawyering you might not use the skill set that makes you good at this job might not make you good at that and the same sort of thing someone who's a lawyer trying to apply their skills to hospo you know you're both at the top of your game but only one of you is being paid at the top of the money and yeah it's it's a weird i don't know so and anyway. how, how how do you become financially independent you, you were trying to you know 
go down the, the, the route of listening to podcasts and so what is it like start a side hustle stick to a budget what what are the what are the secrets well I'm, I've done I, I keep having to remind myself I've done very well and that's because I do budget very tightly yeah and I'm, I'm pretty good I don't have you know any afterpay or any monthly stress in that sort of realm and I can save a bit but you know you that's I'm I'm still in a position where I might be having to still be working when I'm 80, which I don't want to do. No. You know, I you know I have enough money to save aside to have a to actually pay for the two weeks holiday I'm allotted a year. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> be nice. Um, but uh, so the, here's the here's the thing that in terms of we've already eaten up so much time on the podcast about this, but uh, I was thinking, do. You and I know have great contacts in the wine industry because one of the podcasts was talking about shares and I hate the idea of shares. And the other one was talking about um, property and property is great, but there's gosses a lot of overhead to get started in property. And the other idea is making your own business, which you've got. But I said, use the contacts that you know so you're, you're strong in it. I thought, what if we did, because we talked about last week, what, what did we name it? The wine. We had a name for a wine that we're going to make. I'm going to look it up. Yes. Inexplicable, we did have a name. inexplicable happiness. Yep. That's right. That was a great, great name. We've got contacts in the wine industry. Could we actually make a wine and sell that and generate a profit through that and establish a brand? Oh, I'm certain we could. What? My question then to you, because I've thought about this a little bit, you, to play it safe, what grape varietals and regions do you think are in enough demand that A, we can we could do it and B, because it'd be hard to say, hard to say, oh, uh, inexplicable happiness, uh, King Valley Vermentino would take a lot of hand selling. It might be great, but it would take a lot of hand selling. But if we if we need to have some help turn over this, we need something that's a safe safe bet. So what do you think we could produce that would be a safe not easy, but safer than King Valley Vermentino? Well you gotta think easier. about right now, what does the market want? The market wants either top top Pinot Noir or top top Shiraz. Maybe to, Grenache at a stretch. Has to be top top? Well they 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 want t- toppers in quality, not so much price. Price, yeah. And that's the that's the juggle, isn't it? Yep. Everybody. So I, I think you've got to you've you've got to start there first. Like we've got a name, brilliant. But we've got to know <laughs> we've got to know what the market wants. We can give them inexplicable happiness in a bottle, but um, we've got it. We've got to know what they want first. And what do they want? I would hazard a guess they want something between 27 and $34 a bottle. Yeah. They want something that they know the growers and they do. We're the hosts of the podcast, so they've listened to us and our dribble for some time now, two seasons worth. And so they, <laughs> yeah. they, they, share, they share in the story. And then most of all, they want something that they can – then invest in themselves, whether with their hard-earned dollars 
or whether the fact that with the story, I listened to a couple of these old industry veterans dribble on of a Thursday and this is their version of inexplicable happiness and they share that with their friends over a movie on a Friday night or some Netflix and chilling or a barbecue. And so that can, that can happen. Um, but my vote would be, yeah, for any of those three varieties. Three? Was it Pinot? Oh, you said Grenache. So Pinot, Grenache yeah. and Shiraz. That's, no well, that's what the market won. That's well, we're in the middle of down under. We're in the middle of our winter season. So, uh, yeah, but we, you, we you won't said be doing what are they, this until vintage? So what, you, what, said, yeah. you said now. What do they want? Um, so, would you like to do a wine or a range of wines? If you're going to do a range, then you definitely need a white. You definitely need a red. I don't think you and I could ever go past Riesling. It's our common ground on Luke's talk Riesling. Yeah, but is um, there enough market for Riesling these days? Oh, there's no market for it. No. Yeah, so you'd be you'd be a passion project, but you know we we need to turn this into we need to have turnover for this to be a business. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, that was the point of the discussion, wasn't it? The business. Yeah. So, sorry, uh, I know <laughs> sorry. we could all dream. <laughs> sorry, yes. If we're not dreaming and you actually want a sustainable business, then yeah, you've got to go through another one of the noble varieties and probably pick something like. Um, oh, sh- sh- I'd love to do Chardonnay, but Chardonnay would be expensive. Do do no, that's the thing. Do we give the punters buttery Chardonnay and just say this is what you've asked for, isn't it? Oh. Gee, inexplicable happiness in a bottle is a buttery Chardonnay. Oh, is it? Is it still? Is it? Is it? Bring it back. Gee, I get asked for it a lot. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, all the time. Hmm. Where would you get that fruit from? And who who well, would you bribe to make that? You'd have to ask the... around. Well, you and I would write the pros and cons of the winemakers we know and love, yeah. uh, and then we we'd come together, probably over a bottle of Riesling. Um, or two, depending yeah. on how alcoholic they were. Um, if it was 10 degrees alcohol, we'd probably just have a lunchtime wine. We'd have a bottle each and come up with all the good decisions. And then we would have a list of four or five winemakers that we would go to to make inexplicable happiness. That's um, the way we would have to do it, I think. I think this is interesting for the listener in terms of this is the decisions that people have to make if we were if we were to create a brand and supposed to be the farmers ourselves we would look at our i think we would look at our contacts and from there you'd look at the region because we don't have the farm so we'd look at is uh i I don't want to name names because that ties that sounds like we're tying people to the process but let's just say if we picked someone from uh, Geelong, um, Mornington Peninsula, Beechworth, and Heathcote, because I'm already thinking of four people I know who work in each of those areas. Fair, fair, fair. We'd then say, oh, well, those are the, those are the four, let's say, winemakers that we know who we, we trust to work with. And then there's obviously more, You, but anyway. You'd then say, well, which of those would be the person you who would make Chardonnay for us? And you probably wouldn't choose the um, the Heathcote producer for that. Hmm. No, you wouldn't. Teach, you wouldn't choose the Heathcote producer for the Chardonnay. No. Because it um, would then come down to the access to vineyard that they have and what fruit they might be able to source, or well, we would have to source the fruit. Yep. 
Oh gosh, all the logistics are in it. That's why you get paid the big bucks for running a small business because all those logistics of pulling those strings, getting the fruit delivered to a winery that has space. Ugh. To a winery that has space. That would be, that would, yeah. So there's a lot of decisions that go into it and the, the listeners are on board. I think they're on board. I can tell. This sounds like I, I love your idea that we should nut this over a um a bottle of Riesling. <laughs> I love your idea of the name Inexplicable Happiness. It was your oh it was your name. I just you just you just said it and then I said that was that's a great winery name. <laughs> no wonder I think it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Luke Morris from Luke's Talk Wine. I've written some books, so visit Luke Morris. Ha. Dot com dot au. Go there, see the books, buy one, support the podcast. That's lukemorrisha.com.au, L-U-K-E-M-O-R-R-I-S-H-A.com.au. Have a great day. Hey, what about yeah. some of the wines we have been drinking and we have been mentioning on this show throughout the year? So uh, about a month or six weeks ago when we were, we, we were just alerted to the fact, and this is episode... What did we say it was? It's episode 16 of season two, and we are coming up to our mid-season break. And you flagged very intelligently, I might add, that we should do our own top 100 at the end of the year of the wines yeah. and that we've, that we've enjoyed and we know and the brands. Uh, I think I'll, I'll, just... I'll t- rather on our break, I'll take some time. I'll, I'll still maintain the uh, time I spend on the podcast each week, but I was just dedicated to uh, making that happen, dear listeners. So, uh you can expect some sort of fill in a email sort of campaign yep. after the break, which is a great idea. But you and I first, and I think it's a great topic for this week. A little bit of a precursor to what peeps are going to get at the end of the season. But already we've tasted some stunning wines this year. Have you got a few that you can recollect for the listener, Luke Morris, that have really just spun you out or just really made made an impression on you because you taste as many wines as what i do so have some left a mark more than others ah uh, no nah. <laughs> nothing, nothing jumps out not that albarino that you had not with me oh gosh that was else. good yeah no the albarino and see yeah no yeah, I, nah. I, did, did did we have a dinner was that this year yeah that was last year wasn't well, it well it was december but, that um, was December last year, so that doesn't does, that doesn't count. We, we don't do financial years and Luke's talk wine. No, no. We talk vintage to vintage, so it has to be after. Do we talk vintage to vintage? So has to be after January one and before okay. today's date. <laughs> okay, well, that's not quite vintage to vintage, but anyway, um, or maybe it is. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, that Albarino was good fun. So who was the producer there? I don't know. Um, they were yeah. they were from X Base. There is some. Uh, it was a name that I just won't be able to pronounce off the top of my head. I don't Rest. think I ever said Rest. it to anyone. Yeah, no. It was it was a really colourful label. looked looked fun. The bottle was too long. It was a silly length of bottle, but uh, uh, no, that was good. Oh, do you know what I did have? Because no. this was good. I um I think this is actually the first time I've mentioned this winery on the podcast. Pondalowry. Mm-hmm. Um I had a K 
Cabernet Malbec from them, and I, I served mm-hmm. it up to a, a bunch of staff at work, and I, I, we played options, and they, they were pretty good. Uh, you know, I asked them questions and you know made them explain why, like why they were choosing their answers, and and they were pretty good, and most of them were picking up really really good things really well on it, which is great when you do options because that's a blind tasting thing so they really just was reacting to what they think's in the glass and so they did really really well up until i asked the vintage and the options were 2015 2010 and 2005 and everyone said 2015 and it was a 2005 Mm. it was looking so young and long and vibrant cracker jack bottle and so the winemaker though from there you know cut his teeth in south australia didn't he yeah 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 and so he would have been influenced by those great wines of granite creek and windery and those kind of really quintessential um you know wines that that have honed those cabernet malbec skills yeah, yeah, I think some of the Malbec cunnings that, that well, the Cabernet cunning and the Malbec cunning. The Cabernet cunning was from an old block in um, Saint Hallet, not the old block because that's a Shiraz vineyard, but it's an old mm. um, uh, Cabernet block that Saint Hallet have access to. And the Malbec right. is uh, Rinderie Malbec. And wow. Okay. He, he just asked for um, kind permission to. Uh, take some cuttings to replant and use their original vines, and um, uh, which which most of those people, you know, they understand the the grit that it takes. They said, "Well, if you're prepared to do that, as as long as you don't, you know, leave big scars in the in the <laughs> in the vine, mm-hmm. go for it." And that's what he did. You're right. Wow. Well, there's, Sounds there's, like a there's, game changer. Ah, you know, good good rootstock is is one of the things, man. That's why there's mm. so many, so much talk about clones and all that stuff these days. Because people don't just go and replant, you know, get cuttings and replant. They all use clones. It's farming clones. Mm. But yeah, what 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 wines are you drinking, mate? What what do you remember? Oh, gee, I've I've, I've had a, I've had a few stand out this year already, actually. Um... Yeah, a few whites. I really loved in some of the uh, estate-grown Sinapius from Tassie that their Clem Blanc. So the Clem is their blend, I guess. It's like a field blend. It's a estate-grown on an old sparkling-based vineyard. So it's got Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Gruner, Gewurz, Tremina, but it's all filtered through the Chardonnay must. So it's less on three days on skins, but they're Chardonnay skins. And so it's just this really kind of natural, co-fermented, delicious, complex, highly aromatic wine. But, you know, in summer, you know, it had these scents of kind of lychee and beeswax and the palate was all just white creams and lollies, but it had this saline-like finish. It was just a remarkable wine made by Linda. Linda and Vaughan have got a, a wonderful story, albeit a somewhat tragic one. Clem is one of Vaughan's daughters. Vaughan passed away during COVID to natural causes. And Linda's been making the wine with Peter Dredge and Joe Holliman. But uh, this is the first vintage of the Clem 2021 without Vaughan. And it is just an absolute belter. Uh, you know, oh. and it's not it's, it's not a million bucks either. Like it was like 
mid thirties retail, I think. And um, it was just, you know, outstanding. It's also not a, probably not a wine you're going to keep for 10 or 15 years, Luke, but it is just a, a wonderful wine and not your usual, um, not your usual straight up and down. It's, it's a wine that is just utterly delicious from the top of the bottle to the bottom. So that oh, really made that made an impression. Fun. Yeah, absolutely. That made an impression back back in summer. More recently, uh, I, I was in a Chianti phase there, and uh, I, had, I had a Chianti Classico. Actually, I had the Brand Kaya 2018. So Brand Kaya's from Rada in the middle of Tuscany, a state started back in the 80s, 81, I think. Um, and it's a special place. I've actually had the pleasure of visiting Brand Kaya, but their 2018 was actually their 30th anniversary of the um, estate's release. Like it's called the 30th anniversary. Brancai was a Chianti Classico reserver of sorts, I guess, but it's a real kind of perfect match of Merlot, Sange and Cabernet, just taking a kind of little bit of a, a Bordeaux spin on things on Tuscany and it just really showcases the kind of essence of what those Tuscan wines made where outside the set of rules can be. It just had this... Yeah, it's a super Tuscan. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But everything from spice and leather and tars and crushed earth, it just equal parts structure but equal parts kind of silky and succulent, Luke. It just It really had me mesmerised from start to finish. It was one of those wines where I just had a chance to have a glass... I didn't have a chance to have a whole bottle. I, was just, I pulled it and I served it with the meal and then did something else or tended to the family or hung out with my boys. And I just, I just, it just mesmerized me this one glass that I had. And it wasn't until the very next day that I got to have another look at it and it was just better. Yep. You know, it's, um, it really had me Good captivated. Breakfast wine, was it? Yeah. Well, it wasn't quite breakfast wine, but it, it just, it, just it took me back to you know the, the long uh, the long warm days in Tuscany and it was just an amazing wine. It just you could drink it at an early age, but it could probably age for twenty plus years. You know, it had length, it had structure. It just really embodied um, it embodied what the wine you know the essence of Tuscany. Everything from tilde to that savoury character that I just love about Tuscan wines. Cool. Mm. So a couple a couple of real cracking wines that I've had, a couple that you've had. Moving moving on, what about what about vintage charts? You know, what's a good vintage chart? Where can you find one? Do we need them? Holidays is behind a paywall, so you've got to pay up front for it. Yep. Luke Morris, talk to me about vintage charts. I, I like them. I don't I don't know where you come from on the on the boat. I know that you can't. Vintage charts are a, a handy guide, but I don't think they're the be all and end all because. Um, you know this in the industry. Sometimes, if there's like, if word gets out that oh, 2020 was a bad vintage, people just won't touch 2020 wines. I get this at the moment with 2017. Oh. Apparently, yep. in some places 2017 was a bad vintage, and had some taste of some very fine wines from 2017. You know, just because. Across a whole state, it wasn't good. Doesn't mean that one or two wineries didn't make good wines. Like, and it also brings the question of what constitutes a bad vintage. 
Okay. Well, that, that that's that's my point. So I really, you know, I absolutely detest the vintage chart. Vintage charts oh, really? are, are not for me. There's a way better way to follow wines. You, you, you mentioned you well. You mentioned 2017 as a sommelier that's been treading the boards of, of restaurants and whatnot, and, and you know hotels and navigating their way through cellars. People often. I, I remember 2009. 2009 was in fact a disastrous vintage in in some places, but in yes. others it was wonderful. I mean, I, I physically worked the vintage in the Yarra in 2009 and had to leave because of Black Sunday. I finished the vintage in Barossa, uh, equal, equally equally as hot. However, in the Hunter, where I'm from, it made some wonderful, wonderful red and white wines. Some of the wines that I've had out of Tasmania, both aromatic and noble varieties, were scintillating. All the entirety of WA, from the Swan Valley down the entire west coast, almost to the Great Southern like Esperance Way were just magnificent, but yet sommeliers the world over ruled out 2009 oh. as a vintage. And what, well, it's an odd Uncle... year, mate. Don't you know the rule? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. If I hear that again, the odd years, the even years. <laughs> That's it. absolute bollocks and bunker, <laughs> if I've ever heard of it. So I'm not into a vintage chart, but what there is a great way, and, and there, there is a great way around it, I think. Yeah. And well, what is it? Go on. Yeah, yeah, righto. So I reckon if you just follow the wines you love, and if you drink enough of them, so you know the wines you love. There, you've mentioned the Pondalawi Cabernet Malbec. So if you've drunk enough of that over the years, you will see what is a good year and what is a bad year. You'll have an idea of the winemaker's penchant for how he uses his fruit or her fruit, for that matter, and you'll be able to pick. The good years. I think what went wrong with what went wrong with vintage charts was the introduction of points and ninety-eight points here, and I'm a hundred points on that. And all of a sudden, people have got um like um they've got something to live up to, and I don't think you can live up to anything when it's agriculture. I think it's so different. From year in year out, I just think vintage charts and, and excessive the scores they're all generalised. Isn't the vintage so? In theory, the, the a, a good vintage is good uh, rain, good at the rain at the right times, good temperature. Um, the fruit should be good. So there's there's you haven't had a lot of frost. You haven't had so for instance, uh, uh, Chablis. Is it 2021 Chablis that got completely frosted now? Yeah. yeah, and so you'd give that a vintage score of. Really, you probably give that a vintage score of two. Would you? Because the the but and because what fruit would have survived might have been good fruit, so people could still make good wine. But gosh, it was a terrible vintage. Whereas, uh, say. So, 2008 in the Barossa from memory was so easy, rains at the right times, frost frost didn't come through and kill everything off there was a bumper crop the fruit was all good you should give that a vintage of like 9 or 10 people could still stuff that up in the winery but the fruit quality should be as, as impeccable as possible absolutely and so a vintage chart is a guide to 
farming conditions for the year, not quality of wine for the year. Oh, totally in the greens. Yeah. So it's not. So therefore, to extrapolate from that, it doesn't mean that. It just means that it's a good guide to help. It doesn't mean that a wine will be good or not that year. But where do you? Yeah. But you, you do you, you don't use them regardless. I I don't really no I don't use them regardless. I just think you know like if I was to use Robert Parker, well Robert Parker shoots out of a hundred and only rates red wine. If I was to use um, the vintage charts from J- Jeremy Oliver, so he oh yeah, he does Jeremy out. Oliver still do vintage charts? I'm sure he does, but he he only rates out of thirty, and he only rates regions that are 30 years or older like does like, he yeah so we well, used to I, don't, I haven't looked at it for you know five or ten years but like i just i just think they're there there's danger they're kind of the glossiest incarnation of attempting to quantify wine quality it's just it's a lot of bunkum really i I don't know, listeners. So you, you, you think skips, maybe is that why someone like um, Langton's doesn't bother with the vintage chart anymore because it's the winery dictates the quality of the the wines from that area more so than the the vintage. Well, let, let's let's and take so one of our let's take one of our favourite regions. Like, right? So let's take one of our favourite regions, uh, Heathcote. Robert Parker does actually rate Heathcote as a region. So the average temperature between very north at the Colburn Avon up there where in Rathjen and Whistling Eagle are and Tellurian are to the very south where our great friends, the Andersons are at Wild Duck Creek Estate, the, 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 the average temperature, mean average temperature is about eight degrees different. So how can you rate a Shiraz from the very, very south in Maimaya to the very, very north at Colburn Avon how can you rate them the same in the same vintages? They're picks three weeks apart and they have an average ripening temperature of eight degrees lower. I just think it's fraught with danger. And for anyone to say, oh, that's a 98 out of 100 vintage, I think it's bollocks. You know, and, and that's, that's of a region I know and understand intrinsically. All of a sudden they start talking to me about Tamar Valley or something that I know little about. And it's washing over me, but I'm expected to agree. I, I suppose I that's know. the thing, though, because but okay, but why do I understand where you're coming from? Mm. But why are vintage charts so important to so many people? Is that because of the perceived value, which which goes on to the auction value of wines? Because a two thousand and let's say a nineteen ninety seven duck mark doesn't sell as highly at auction as a um, 1998 but that's because of the impression that a 98 vintage is the better vintage without looking at the specific wines themselves so it's it's, that's why people care about it because of the perception rather than the actual why? Well, that, that's a that's a really good point, actually, because obviously the '97 was the one that they did discover, and it, it's the one that put Australia on the map, let alone Wild Duck Creek Duck Mark. 
So yeah. that's, a, that's a really good, yeah. I bow to your expertise there because that is a really good point of why yeah, I people... I used that wine specifically because I knew that that was a wine that sh- the 97 should be worth more, but people would be thinking the 98 is worth more because the vintage chart will tell you that. Yeah. So, yeah, well, that's possibly one of the extremist examples why you should use a vintage chart. No, you should not because the 97 but, sorry, is why a you better should, wine. Why, why, that's right, why you should not use a vintage chart. So you've just kind of quantified my argument there. Like yeah. I, I don't I don't see the value. I think we're in agreement. I, I don't see the value in them either. They're, they demonstrate not – they demonstrate a quick look rather than a good look at the vintage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, look, I'm not fully against them. And I do, I do sometimes still try and look them up, but that's because I get those questions a lot and I don't, I don't know. And if there's not a review on the wine, I, I guess the first, my first port of call is always the review on the wine. And if I can't find any review on the wine, I try and see, well, what was the vintage like in Buolo? Because, you know, how do you, how do you know what a better vintage is in Buolo between 2015, 2016 and 2017? Well, that, that's, I mean, you've just, you've just played the game there beautifully. That's what I actually do. So if, if I'm trying to source, you know, a particular wine or a birth year or a bottle for someone to celebrate and they say, I'm looking for a bottle of Barolo, you know, in, in this decade or that, I actually then go and look up the climactical influence or the, the, what was a good year um, weather-wise, you know, like I don't look up, I don't type in Gambero Rosso vintage chart. I actually go and look for myself and, and find out what were the actual better years. And if you're talking about same thing, if you're talking about Barolo versus Barbaresco, the vintage conditions are very very different. So that that's exactly what I do. And you've just um, oh, so I've exposed you as someone who does use a vintage chart. <laughs> no, I go and look up the, the, the weather conditions. I don't look up the oh. chart at all. Oh, right. do you? Oh, you, got, you yes. do your own investigation. I do. Absolutely, I do. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the beautiful thing. And that's why people, you know, pay a sommelier or a broker like us and, and because that's the knowledge that we draw down on as an industry professional. Um, you know, I... What do you do? I think you've got to keep in mind and, and understand if you if you are, heaven forbid, using a vintage chart, you've got to understand how that individual's preferences relate to, to your own. I would prefer you follow a winery or a winemaker and just year in, year out, you decide for yourself. But, yeah, if you're looking further afield, I guess it's, in, it's different from industry professionals to consumer. But it is. Yeah, I'm. I'm just not a fan. I can't say it any differently. Not a fan. No, that's fine. Now you've made me real remember the the whole uh, the origin of vintage and why we bother with vintages at all. And maybe we'll, we'll, we'll that might be a question for another day, because that, yes. that ties us into port and the uh, 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 the origin of the cork. But anyway. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, yeah, there's, there's something to, to yeah write in on. Uh, Luke's talk wine at gmail.com. Do you really want to know why we care about the notion of a vintage at all? <laughs> Good on you. It never, used, it never used to be a thing. Why did it no. become a thing? We can do that. We can. Hey, have you drunk anything delicious this week that's really stood out for you? 
I had a good beer last night. Ooh, yeah. I don't drink a lot of beer, but when I get a good one, I do like it. I was at the Fox Hotel. Anyone who um, is in Melbourne, uh, Fox Hotel, I think, is technically in Collingwood, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I've been in Clifton Hill for a little bit, but so I, I just walked across two streets and went to the Fox Hotel. Fantastic pub, great lineup of beers, really nice people. Um, and I can't remember what I ordered, but they uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> they gave me it was I think it was a copper ale, some sort of amber ale sort of thing, and that nah, was it was it was too high in the percentage of alcohol for what I should have had that night, but. Um, uh, it was good. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I walked home singing a song. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, mate. That's good. Good stuff. What have you been drinking, pal? Mate, um, well, we discussed during the show, actually. I um, spent the weekend up in Beechworth on a, on a wine tour with a group of avid enthusiasts, and I actually tasted for the first time a new vintage vineyard's Smolzer and Brown. I tasted their Thorley single vineyard Shiraz. You know, it's about mid forties, and I was absolutely enamoured by this. It could have, it could have been a, it was could have been a, a Rhone Valley wine. It was kind of deep purple, but it had this wonderful kind of almost, um, you know, like kind of minced fruit, kind of rocky black and white pepper thing going on that just could have been Rhone. I just loved everything about it. Cool climate Shiraz. It's from their single vineyard, not just slightly north of Beechworth, but still in the GI and just a very, very young wine, but just had a lot going for it. V-S-N-B, Thorley Shiraz. Absolutely stunning. Cool. Hmm. See, that's the kind of cool stuff that we can unearth. That's great. When you get out amongst the region and its producers, absolutely. Victoria are uh, talking at the moment. What are they saying? Um, get, get get out, get out, go further. Stay stay close, go further or something like that. And this is one of those cases. Delicious. It's such a campaign. Man, you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go, go do something. Get around. There's, there's uh, Beecher, it's good. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh, what a trip. Well, mate, thank you. Thank you to the listening audience. I've been Luke Campbell. You can find me on the socials at vinified underscore wine underscore services. He's been Luke Morris. Where can we find you? Do do you know what? I don't want anyone to find me. I want you to go tell some friends about this podcast. Um, We do have listeners, and I know you're listening, so tell a friend. That'd That'd be awesome. And when you do tell a friend, listen and rate on wherever you are listening to this service on. Please rate our podcast when you are sharing it because that helps get new listeners on board. In yeah, the we gl- need to sell a whole lot of inexplicable happiness in like a year's time. So, yeah. You know. Coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thank you very much to the listening audience. Thank you to you, Luke Morris. Thanks, mate. No, <laughs> And in the words of Tony Barber, Tony Barber keep, keep smiling, smiling and, and bye for now. Vinified are the wine cellar's specialists. We're Australia's only personal sommelier service. Our sommeliers work with you to build your cellar. Our aim is to bring you the wines from the freshest new producers, all based on your tastes. We can come to you, source your wines, present tastings. Think of Vinified as your wine concierge. 
we can do retail, we can do tastings, we can host your dinner parties, or we can procure you that rare wine. Vinified is proud to be associated with Luke's Talk Wine. www.vinified.com.au